Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. No! Oh my God, how could he do that? Are you on? What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Grabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And if you haven't noticed, the NBA playoffs have started, which means we are as happy as can be. And we've seen some incredible basketball thus far, obviously in these high-stakes situations. Things are starting to get really, really fun. And today, we're going to talk about all of it because we are going to be giving you our first impressions from each of these first-round series. And we're going to start out west between the 1 and the 8 seed where we saw Memphis pull out that Game 1 victory in impressive fashion. Logan, just sort of... What are you taking away from this first game? What are your first impressions? You know, I'm not going to overreact to this game um, and, you know, make like a Kendrick Perkins take, oh, the Grizzlies are going to win this series. Uh, I don't think I don't think that you should. Uh, the Jazz were out, uh, you know, without their two best players down the stretch in this game. And on the whole, they just went uncharacteristically, you know, ice cold for just stretches in this game where their offense was stagnant. And I think once Donovan Mitchell gets back healthy, that's not going to be an issue anymore. Um, they need Gobert to be on the floor in late game scenarios, and he wasn't out there. And... And I think, you know, even though it was a loss, I think there are some, you know, really positive things to take away from this game for the Jazz, and that's that, uh, you know, uh, you know, Bojan can keep you in games, um, and if Mike Conley's shooting well from the floor, I think you're in this game. If Jordan Clarkson is pulling his weight, you're in this game. They only lost by three, and they had, you know, some really bad performances from guys that really need to contribute, and, you know, they had a shot to win this game at the end uh, <laughs> uh, from Bojan. So I, I don't really think this is a game that – People should overreact to and think that the Jazz are going to lose this series. Um, on the Grizzlies' side, Dylan Brooks was always good at getting his shots, but uh, I don't think that anybody should flip or overreact and think that you know the one seed is going to get upset here. If the Jazz are healthy, I expect them to wipe Memphis off the floor. Yeah, I completely agree, and I predicted a sweep here. That obviously will not happen, and that was not out of lack of respect for Memphis. I've been a huge Grizzlies guy for two years just in having a reverence for what they have been able to build so quickly and compete when they're so abnormally young to be in these playoff situations. But I agree with you. I think there are so many indicators that things are going to heavily turn in Utah's favor. 
They shot 12 of 47 from three. That's abnormal for one of the greatest three-point shooting teams ever, and that's going to hurt them when they shoot sub-30%. And then, as you mentioned, Donnie's coming back. There's going to be a chip on his shoulder. He has historically had some remarkable playoff performances and can be that takeover scorer who can swing things for them. And we can talk about how they have been as good with or without him in this regular season, but I do think come playoffs, you need your number one shot maker out there, and you need the guy who can just go out there and rip the heart out of the other team And I do think that that's what Donnie is. And maybe he takes away a couple of those tough Jordan Clarkson shots that aren't following and they become even tough Donovan Mitchell shots. I'd rather have those than have that burden on the collective group of Clarkson and Bogdanovich and Conley. And they're always going to do it by committee, but you want your best offensive guy out there. But I will say I was really impressed by the Grizzlies. And I think that the thing that most stood out to me is just the fearlessness, generally speaking, obviously, when you are a team whose best player is 21 and you're theoretically second best player is I believe 21 as well or maybe Triple J is 22 now he's certainly not playing like their second best player he's a non-factor at this point which is another thing that's going to kill them in this series because he just does not look like himself and hasn't for some time now since coming back and initially we thought was impressive in the first couple games has not trended in the right direction ever since but beyond that I mean specifically the Grizzlies just don't fear Gobert who is the greatest deterrent and the most impactful defender normally in basketball This is an offense that is always predicated upon getting into that painted area. If it's the dribble penetration from a guy like Jaw, if it is the unbelievable post-scoring of Jonas Valanciunas, and that was the same case in this game. They had 62 points in the paint. 62 points in the paint. And they won this game against Utah's elite two-way just bomb squad with only seven made threes. Jaw was going right at him. He had 26 points without a made three. Only attempted one three. Valanciunas doesn't really fear him. He can still get off that little hook over his shoulder. He can still even move Gobert a little bit because he's got to be one of the three to five strongest NBA players. Dylan Brooks doesn't fear anybody, Lord knows, and he's not going to be this consistent scoring throughout this series. I love Dylan Brooks, but the scoring is going to be touch and go with him. It's going to be the defense that you can rely on night to night. But I just think it's interesting because when it comes to jaw, he's so incredible at the evasive acrobatic finishes. He's so great at getting into that little floater area to where he doesn't have to get all the way downhill that I don't know Gobert can take him away as much as I thought. Because that was one of the things I highlighted in this series. It's when you're an offense that is so predicated on getting into the paint and you're facing the greatest paint defender of the last decade, you're going to run into some trouble. But they're certainly still going to try. And they're not going to fear him in the same way that other teams do. And yeah, he's going to affect shots. That's inevitable. But he's not going to keep them from taking shots in the paint. And I think that that just speaks to, again, the fearlessness, the confidence, the grit, the toughness of this Memphis team that also just played really hard and was good defensively. And they're going to compete. I think there's a 0% chance that they beat the Jazz. I think it's much more likely they lose four straight. But I also really think that they could win another one. I don't think this could go seven. I think that Utah is just too reliable. And again, if they don't shoot like this again, they should win pretty much every game. But it was a hell of an accomplishment for Memphis and just impressive stuff to see. Yeah, I agree that I think Gobert is going to be a, a bigger deterrent as this series goes along. I don't know how much I agree with the Dylan Brooks point, though. I don't know, man. He is such a he's such a crafty guy just being able to, you know, get to his spots in the mid-range, his change of pace. He's a good he's a he's a dominant pull-up jump shooter. I think he is going to consistently put in for the Grizzlies. Uh, this series. I think he puts up, you know, over 20 a night the rest of this series, even if it isn't a losing effort. Do you disagree? I kind of disagree. I mean, I agree with you as far as the craftiness goes, but he just doesn't really have the tools of a high-end score. Like, he has some of that nice change in pace, certainly has the confidence, 
but he's not a great enough pure shooter. Like, Dylan Brooks' mid-range jumpers are long-term a risky proposition. He's a 34% shooter from deep, and there's a reason he's been highly inefficient on this year. It's because of that. He can't create those easy, high-probability looks for himself. He doesn't really have the explosiveness to get downhill consistently, and when he does, he can't just, like, go into people and finish through contact as easily as some other guys, and all these things that just say he's going to have his big days, but he's also going to have his off days, and I think that that's what we've seen time and again with him, but he's really good. He just can't be your second-best offensive player if you're going to beat the Jazz, and maybe that ends up being Valanchunas. Either way, though, I just don't think that's enough firepower long-term, but again, they went out and they showed that they belong, and there was no question about that in my mind. I tweeted after they beat the Warriors, there were nine playoff-caliber teams out west this year and eight spots, and that's been true for some time, and the Grizzlies deserve to get in as much as the Warriors did because even though the Warriors were better when Steph was out there throughout the year than the Grizzlies were on a whole— the Grizzlies also dealt with, dealt with a lot of adversity, and they're just, again, so accelerated in their development that they're ahead of where any other team with this kind of youth could be expected to be, and they arguably should have been in last year. And if things had gone according to just straight-up seeding, then, well, they were tied by the end of it with the Blazers, but for a while they were holding that eight seed. So they belong here. That's sort of one of my takeaways. Let's move on to what is, to me, the most fascinating first-round series, I think you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that anything else is. It's the 2-7 matchup out West, Suns-Lakers. I thought that this was a fascinating first game. It was a weird one, obviously. Both teams end up in double digits. We don't have a 100-point output between either team. But sort of what are your first impressions from this one? I mean, my biggest takeaway from this game is something that you've harped on for a long time, Carson, and that's that Devin Booker's a killer. I mean... Without Chris Paul, if he's struggling with his health, if he's out there to help play make and uh, make this offense go, it doesn't matter. Booker's going to get his shots regardless. He's. It was just <laughs> it was so much fun to watch. It didn't matter what the Lakers did to him defensively. He was going to get his own, and I don't know, man. He is the I, – this is, this is the game where I think people need to realize that Chris Paul is not the scariest player for the Phoenix Suns. If Devin Booker is getting it going, he is going to be – a guy who can potentially unseat LeBron and send the Lakers packing out of this series. He was unstoppable. Um, also, in saying that, um, the biggest guy who I think you know we highlighted as a key member of this series, that's DeAndre Ayton. He played damn near perfect basketball, super efficient on the offensive end, off the roll, sneaking back there when AD pulled out um, to defend guys on the perimeter. Um, as great as a lob threat, and he was, more importantly, great defensively on AD, uh, forcing him to take some tough jumpers and not knock them down. Um, you know, AD was held to 13 points on the game. And so I'd say that um, if Booker and Aiden pull their weight like this, we could see the Suns win the, honestly, genuinely get to the finals or win the finals if Book and Aiden keep this level of play up. But on the Lakers' side, I'd say my biggest takeaway is, I mean, come on, guys, LeBron can't do it all by himself. Like, he just, he needs help. AD's got to pull his weight. KCP's got to pull his weight. Um, and, I mean, that's kind of been what we've harped on all season long for the Lakers. The rest of the team has got to pull their weight alongside LeBron. Um, you know, this didn't sway me either way um, as the outcome of this series. I think it's going to be highly contested. I think it goes six or seven. But um, I'm a lot more confident in the Suns and their rotation uh, after watching this game and watching Aiden on the defensive end and Booker explode. Yeah, I want to start with the book point just because I think that this was a perfect example of a game of why he is the most important son offensively. Puts up 34-7-8, and 
And it's not just about the scoring with Book. And it has never been just about the scoring. It's about the way in which he scores, what that opens up for the offense, and the playmaking that comes out of him. He was dissecting doubles in this one. And particularly when he's curling off of those screens and gets into basically that free throw line area, he's just impossible to cover because there's no answer there. He's too good of a decision maker to throw multiple defenders at him really at any time because he's going to find the open man. He's going to find him pretty quickly at this point. But... When he does curl off those screens, you're immediately in the danger zone because obviously he's one of the best mid-range shooters in basketball. So the big man has to show for a second, has to get up in his face for a second just while the defender recovers and gets around the screen. And then Book can just throw that lob or if you're not up on him enough, he'll just pull that little short mid-range right in your face. And he was killing Drummond with that short mid-range. And it's tough because if you're a guy like Drummond who isn't light enough on his feet to hang with a guy like Booker maybe 15, 16 feet out. You're trying to take away that restricted area. And for Book, he doesn't need to get in there to be absolutely lethal as a scorer. And so Lakers are going to have their hands full with that all series long. He's not going away. There is no answer to say, okay, how do we make Devin Booker uncomfortable? You can try to double him. He's seen enough of it at this point that that's not going to take him out of his element. And he's just going to make the guys around him better. Yeah, and I want to touch on that Drummond point. Look, man, I know he's efficient from the field offensively. Uh, he shot 5 of 7. I think Andre Drummond is just, you know, we've said this before. I think he's borderline unplayable, bruh. I just don't think you can give the man minutes alongside another non-shooter. Like, why are you running him with Trez on the floor? Why are you running him with AD on the floor? It's, I hate Andre Drummond. Yeah, it's ridiculous, and I thought that Frank Vogel was showing that he was past this with the Warriors game, and he only played Drummond 19 minutes in this one, but you're right, it's excruciating, and he actually played one of his better games in this one. I thought that he had a pretty good defensive stretch, he was good on the boards, and you're right, finished when he had the opportunities, but also there's stuff that just doesn't show up on the stat sheet, like just fumbling, little dump-off passes, things that I guess don't count as turnovers for him, but really should and just defensive missteps. I thought this was one of his better games, but I still don't think that you can play him significant minutes because he's just not good. And when 80's at the five, you're so much better. So clear that's your best option. Are you uh, Are you still a Marcus All supporter? I'm an 80 at the five supporter above all else. If you're going to play a guy center minutes, yeah, I'd say make it Gasol. But Anthony Davis is a center. Your team is best when he's a center. You are better with four perimeter guys around him. No question. We've seen that unequivocally now. Just do it. And I do have to highlight AD himself here because you touched on how the Lakers just need to play better across the board, and they will, no doubt. This was a bad, bad Lakers game, and that's what I think Suns fans, to a certain extent, aren't getting in their celebration is that you're not going to get another Lakers game like this. You just need so much more from the big two. I thought that LeBron didn't look fully 100%, and I've said this for a few games now, it was just a lack of assertiveness that's somewhat abnormal from him. People will talk about, oh, game one is a feeling out period for LeBron. Yeah, maybe, but in a series where I think this is going to go seven against such a stellar two-way team, when you know this is going to be such a grind, I don't know how much feeling out you can do, and it's kind of been the way that he's played the last few games. He took six twos versus seven threes, and you see it with LeBron. When he just starts settling, when his goal is to take those step backs or even inside the arc to take those face-up mid-range jumpers and not explode to the bucket... That's telling about where he's at. He took two shots inside the restricted area all day and was clearly just looking to play make first and was making some great passes. But when he's not the same threat as a scorer, first of all, this offense can't function at a really high level because there aren't enough great shot makers around him, especially not when AD played like he did. And you take away, to a certain extent, from the playmaking gravity just because if he's not getting fully downhill, 
you know, he's not collapsing a defense as much, and he's LeBron James. He's going to do that better than most people. But I just think he didn't have his full pronounced impact on the game, and that was because he wasn't fully assertive. And if he's going to continue to be like that, the Lakers are going to be in trouble. I expect him to kick it into gear, even if he's not 100%. This is LeBron James, and 90% of LeBron James or 85% of LeBron James can be one of the best offensive players in basketball. But it's AD, the guy opposite him, who just has to be so, so much better. This was embarrassing. So embarrassing. And last couple games from AD have been a real wake-up call in some respect. This whole year was kind of a wake-up call. But then it was like he started around in a form, had a couple of explosive games when he was carrying that team without LeBron. But this was atrocious. 5 of 16 on the day. 12 of his 16 shots came from 10 feet out or further. And we talked about how crucial this matchup with Aiton is going to be because Aiton has the physical tools, the length, and the strength to make things tough on AD. So every possession where Aiton is on AD is a tough jumper for him. And I just think you need to find a way to create that easier offense for AD because he is not a good enough post player to expect him to be a star there. And he really hasn't been. And last year's playoffs was one of the rare exceptions where he was so brilliant shooting that he kind of was. But he's 59th percentile out of the post in what is generally just an inefficient play type with no real playmaking gravity. He's not a great decision maker from there. It takes time for him to read the court and to dissect doubles if they were to throw them at him, but they don't need to double him at all. And I just think we need more LeBron AD pick and roll. AD shot once out of the pick and roll with LeBron all game. That is ridiculous. That is overpowering offense. That is how you actually capitalize on this and say, okay, Aiden's not going to be a difference maker. We're just going to have AD slip by him and catch a lob. And even when they do run pick and roll, AD's looking to hit the short jumper every time. Why? What happened to the guy who took eight and a half free throws a game last year and the guy who for his entire career has been aggressive trying to get downhill? This entire year, it's just been so jump shot reliant on him in a way that you just do not expect. And they can't tolerate that. Aiton is obviously a very good defensive player who, again, has tools to make things tough on AD, but AD also needs to not be so passive and it needs to be a change in mindset above all else because AD is taking the same bad shots he's taken too much all year and so this is to a certain extent in his control and it's time to kick into gear and be that hyper-aggressive offensive star that he can be and I do think he will. I think he will be much better as things go along but I also don't know if we will ever see him reach the absolute peak that he did in last year's playoffs just because the jump shooting was so spectacular and right now it's not like that and some of the possessions it's not just out of the pick and roll where he's taking those short mid-range pull-ups or out of the post. The possession where he shot the pull-up three, I was just like, dude, what are you doing, man? You haven't been able to hit this shot consistently all year. This is not the time to take it, and it's just been frustrating. He has to impose himself on the game. He has to force himself on the game to where if those shots aren't falling, he gets the line 12 times like he used to do, like Anthony Davis is supposed to be able to do. And when that happens, I think that there will probably be too much power between this top duo for L.A., but if it doesn't happen, they're done. Yeah, and I think a big part in that, I think Aiton and Monty Williams deserve a lot of credit for how they played uh, AD defensively. I mean, Aiton was patrolling the paint all game long. They made sure that he was there for whatever role man was going to come at them wherever the ball was, if it was Drummond rolling to the hoop, if it was AD. Aiton was going to be that guy, and I think there's a part in that, Carson, that Anthony Davis can have an effect on Aiden defensively if he gets him into foul trouble, if he is being aggressive and forcing Aiden to to contact him and come out and play hard. You can force him into foul trouble, get him off the floor. It makes things it makes life easier for your offense as a whole. Um, but I think you're exactly right. If I want to ask you a question because 
so say AD gets more aggressive, we see a little bit of a semblance of what he was last year. If he's more aggressive but that jump shot isn't hitting, can the Lakers win the finals? I think so. Because I think he can still be a 25-point-per-game scorer. I mean, obviously, if he doesn't hit a single jumper, no. But I think that he can shoot high 30s from the mid-range area. And if he is adaptive and if he just, again, tries to become that internal force, like, why isn't he catching more lobs? Why aren't they running more pick-and-roll with LeBron? There's so much about this Lakers team right now that perplexes me because they just should be better than this. They just should be. And I do think that they'll get better than this. But this was a... Really weird first game, and they didn't really have that third difference maker either, and Schroeder's going to have to be that guy throughout these playoffs, and that's something that I've been optimistic about, thinking that Schroeder is good enough to do that, and that kind of remains to be seen, but this is going to be a grind, dude, and that's one of my favorite things about this series, and I tweeted this right after game one, and I talked about this beforehand. The tempo is just so fun, dude, and this is why I was almost nervous for this to be a first-round series, is because I knew there was no way it was going to feel like it, because... Obviously, when you get to the big stake moments, things slow down a little bit. They become more physical. It becomes more slug it out. It becomes more about getting into that mid-range area. And that's what this series is going to be the entire time. And that's going to be a lot of fun. 16 combined made threes in game one. Again, neither team reached 100 points. But it was a fun one, and it was interesting, and a great win for Phoenix. Of course, they belong here, and of course, they were going to win a game. I mean, I've said that I thought that this was going to go seven. And on their home court, when the Lakers play like this, they really better win. You want to talk about your boy campaign getting tossed at all? Look, that was a crime against humanity. I guess it really wasn't because it was his second individual tech, but that was weird to see him be the guy get ejected out of that circumstance because he wasn't the initiator. That was Caruso. And then he wasn't the guy who had the most flagrant offense in Trez pushing him. So that was weird. But no, campaign is going to prove what he's about out there. He's going to put some heads on some sticks and uh, is probably going to get 25 next game. I do think we should talk about, from the Suns' perspective, what this CP injury means because obviously went down with that shoulder injury in the second quarter. It's been described as a stinger. I thought he looked off. What did you think? And what does that mean for this series? No, no, I mean, he looked off big time. Um, he wasn't nearly as aggressive. It looked like he was, yeah, he was just passive. You know, he wasn't cutting. He wasn't trying to get to his spots. He didn't want the rock. Um, I mean, if Chris Paul is not fully healthy, it just means that um, these role players, as in Macau Bridges, Jay Crowder, uh, Cam Johnson, guys who are going to be getting, getting, you know, shots on the wings, they're going to have to play damn near perfect from behind the arc. Jay Crowder cannot go 0 for 7 uh, from deep again and expect to win if Chris Paul is off. And Devin Booker is going to have to take on a massive scoring load. You're going to need 30 or 40 every single night if CP is not back to full health. Um, I'm hoping for it, but uh, I mean, this is a basic answer, but if CP is not back to full health, this makes this exponentially harder for the Suns to win. It just means everybody's got to step up. You've got to play damn near perfect. That would break my heart. And it's weird with CP because you talk about him being passive, but he also just does that. You know, I think that as I said, he had whatever it was, 11 single-digit scoring games on the year. He scores seven points, way more than any other star player. But he literally looked like he was struggling to get to the ball to the bucket from 20 feet out. There was one possession where he has AD on him, and it looked like he's putting everything into it. I mean, he always kind of shoots it from the shoulder, but this was almost like a shot put. I mean, he slung this ball, and it was an air ball short. And he's always going to be taking tough shots. Like, that's just his game is getting to that mid-range area and taking those 
little fadeaways and taking those little pull-ups and all the stuff that makes him so good and so tough to cover. But this looked like he was really laboring when he was shooting. And so I am concerned about that. It would break my heart. Sorry, Suns fans. I know you guys have suffered. It would break my heart more for Chris Paul that now he's going to be on the team where he probably has the second best chance of his career to win a title. Maybe the third best, depending on what you think of the 2015 Clippers. And if that took it out, that would be heartbreaking. But he's going to play. He's definitely going to keep playing. And he can affect the game in a big way without scoring. I mean, he does it. It's the playmaking. It's the control. But... They're going to have to run things through book, and CP isn't going to be able to maybe have those moments where he steps up and is that late-game assassin, and that's what scares me the most because CP can score seven points for the first three quarters all he wants. He does that all the time, but you kind of expect him to get 10 in the last quarter because he's done that so consistently this year, and losing out on that second big shot maker would hurt them, but it's really speculation at this point. We don't know what he's going to look like going forward, and we really didn't have a massive sample size to see what he did look like shooting the ball. He only probably took four or five shots after coming back, but again, the passivity did strike you a little bit. Anything else that stood out from this game to you? Um, Not a whole lot, honestly. I mean, just that I don't know. They were able to win and not really shoot well from behind the arc. That's just kind of a weird anomaly in any games today. Yeah, and that's, again, one of the fun things about this series. I don't think either team has to shoot great. It's certainly going to kill you if you shoot very poorly, but you can have an average shooting series, and both these teams can certainly survive that. I don't want to take away too much from this game. I think that what just stands out is AD has to be so much more aggressive, and LeBron has to be more aggressive, and... If that happens, you're in there because it's not like the Suns exploded offensively. I mean, Book was so special, but Aiton is not going to every game, get eight offensive boards, be on cleanup duty to where he scores 21 points super easily. Like, it's not like he had to create really a single shot with his back to the basket or facing up or anything. It's just, oh, okay, I have the ball inside of three feet. I'm going to shoot it now, and that's why he was 10 for 11. And if AD allows that to happen for a full series, shame on him. And that will be a black mark on his resume because that would be really embarrassing. All right, let's keep moving now to the only series out West that we have seen two games of, Blazers-Nuggets. We saw the Blazers take the first game by 14. We saw the Nuggets win last night by 19. What are your first impressions here? Um, I mean, the first game uh, made me depressed. It deflated me. <laughs> um, when Jokic was off the floor, the Nuggets just got just outclassed man the Blazers weren't missing shots and that's why I'm not going to overreact too much uh in this series or in these first two games I think this series it's a boring answer this series is literally just going to come down to whose role players shoot better because every possession down Damian Lillard is effing unstoppable Nikola Jokic is effing unstoppable and it's (laughs) it's literally just going to come down to because I don't think you can slow either of these guys down. Um, in game two, you saw that stretch. I think Dame had, what, like 20 points in the third quarter. He was torching MPJ out of the pick and roll. He refused to come up, and Lillard was just eating on him on all those switches. Um, and Jokic is unstoppable when he gets the rock in that uh, from the line. I think it's just simply going to come down to can guys knock down their shots. I like uh, the role players in Portland a little more because I think, like you touched on previous, Carson, I drastically underestimated how much of a load these guards are going to have to take on with Murray out, how much Monte Morris is going to have to do, how much Austin Rivers is going to have to do. And honestly, bro, after how much Composito is going to have to do too, honestly, at this point, I might play Marcus Howard instead of Austin Rivers, man. I really liked what he was giving uh, the Nuggets out there on offense. He's, 
I don't know, man. Rivers has his moments, but Howard just looked aggressive getting to the bucket. He was competing hard on defense. Um, and I guess another takeaway from game one is don't make Melo angry. <laughs> that, that was nice. That was fun to watch. I don't want him to light the Nuggets up again. Yeah, it's it's a boring answer. I think this series just comes down to whose role players shoot better. And uh, God, if you can slow down Damian, man, when he is when he's going, he's he's like Steph, man. Yeah, no, he was so unreal last night for that second quarter stretch. I mean, he ate eight threes in the first half, and the last one, the punctuation on that incredible half just where he hits that step back when they try to send the double at him. He is unstoppable from beyond the arc when he's dialed in. So there's a lot to touch on there. First thing I'll say is, I don't think that they can play Marcus Howard more. I just think defensively it's too tough. He can compete, but compared to the tools that Rivers has, where he's an experienced, competitive guy with a 6'7 wingspan, Marcus Howard is so small, man. And I just worry that he's not able to affect the kind of high caliber guards that obviously they're going to be facing play after play after play here. I do want to ask you something because I probably should have provided this context, but the Nuggets were technically your title pick on the podcast. You said you were taking them to the finals, but you were taking the Nets and seven over them. And then I think you just made a mistake on your graphic, but then you stuck with it and you said, now I'm taking the Nugs. Are you still riding with them for this series? Because you were talking about how the key is the role guys, but you like the Blazers role guys more. Nah, bro, that's probably my worst take ever. I'm not going to lie. Uh, dude, I have – dude, I'm really nervous about this series. I know for damn sure the Nuggets are not getting to the finals this yeah. year. That's that's out the door. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, I don't know what I was on uh, when I made that take. For this series, the Nuggets just have so much more consistent, reliable offense with Jokic, and that was evident in both games. Like, in game one, the Nuggets were more reliable every possession down, in my opinion, but – when Norman Powell yeah. and Carmelo and CJ and Dame are just knocking down every jumper they take, it's frustrating. I would probably, I'd probably switch to Portland right now just because I like their late game shot making and they're just shot making in general. I just think they're deeper than Denver right now. But I think this is a series that goes six or seven after what we've seen out of the first two. But uh, no, I completely redact my Nuggets uh, out of the West take immediately. Yeah, it was a spicy one. In the moment, one that I was uh, quite a bit skeptical of, and I think probably everybody who heard it was. But I loved the Jokic love because what he's doing is beyond amazing. Last night was masterful, and it's just such an astounding contrast because the Nuggets just really don't have creators off the bounce, and we knew that. And we knew that they could be an elite offense in spite of that because of everything that runs through Jokic and the fact that their roles are so simplified. It's just knock down spot-up jumpers, cut to the bucket, and he will create everything for you. But seeing them play that way in contrast to the shot making off the bounce of Dame, CJ, and Norm is just astounding. I mean, their third best perimeter shot maker as far as creating for himself is at such a higher level than the Nuggets' best guy. Like MPJ is a better scorer than Norman Powell, but he's not better at actually creating for himself off the bounce. And what's interesting is, as the Nuggets lack, obviously, these guys who can really create for themselves at a high level... The Blazers really aren't doubling Jokic, which is interesting because you think, okay, you can kind of limit his ability to create for others, and that's when he's deadliest is when you double him out of the post because he's going to dissect it like nothing. But I also think he's just going to get 35 a game on you, and that's what he's done over the first couple. He had 34 in game one. He had 38 in game two, and I don't think that that's exactly a dream answer for a guy who is so unstoppable as a scorer. And I will say I loved Monte Morris getting 30 minutes in game two because he is – 
I don't know, maybe their most trusted pick-and-roll ball handler as far as actually making good decisions, getting into that mid-range area. And I thought that that was very wise of them to play him more, and I don't know why he didn't play more in Game 1. And until Will Barton is back, which is hopefully going to be soon. They were talking to in the broadcast about how he's just doing three-on-three work now. They're just going to have to lean on Morris more. But the reason that I am still on the Nugget side of things here is that when you can win a game in which the other team makes four more threes on nearly 50% from three, and you win that game by 19 points, that is telling. And the Blazers up to this point, through two games, have made 35 threes on 48% shooting from deep, and they have been outscored. And I just still think they're too bad defensively in Portland because the high-powered offense is going to be there, and there are going to be days where Dame, CJ, and Norm combine for 80 points, but they are going to let up so many on the other end. And single-covering Jokic with even Nurk is suicide. You are going to let him get 35 every time out, and maybe that's the option you prefer, but it's still a pretty terrible option. And I also just don't really trust anybody outside of Portland's top five all that much. I mean, Melo's going to be relying on the shooting night tonight, and I think that the Nuggets are a machine. They have guys who know how to play. They play well together. And even if the talent on paper is kind of a joke compared to the Blazers, certainly on the offensive end, I just trust it. And I think that that's because of Jokic. And Dame was outstanding last night. But there is no question about who the best player in the series is by a wide margin, and it's Jokic, and I mean, he showed that. He was phenomenal, and because of that, I trust him to carry this offense through this series, and I think defensively, they're just that much better than Portland, who I think, they're too bad for me to really bet on on the defensive end to win a series. So what are your suggestions for Portland defensively against Jokic? I think that they're probably taking the best approach. I mean... I talked about the possibility of them switching Rocco onto him if he just keeps killing Nurk and Cantor. But I just think that then you lose too much quickness on the perimeter. And uh, you're laughing, man. I don't know. Rocco is, to me, the best option one-on-one. I just think it hurts you too much elsewhere. Because Rocco, you can't really move him. He's got great hands. He's tough. No, I'm sorry. I wasn't laughing at you. I'm looking at these uh, advanced box score numbers from Game 2. Robert Covington had an offensive rating of 49. You know, I don't know how reliable these numbers are, but that's tremendous. Yeah. Single game offensive rating means absolutely nothing. Single player offensive rating, generally, I just tend to avoid. But you talked about how sketchy the Nuggets looked in non-Jokic minutes in game one. I thought game two was a massive, massive improvement from that. Particularly, I thought Paul Millsap was fantastic. And... I have been all year unimpressed by Paul Millsap, and I think that that makes sense if you've watched him. But he was asserting himself, particularly he was just putting his back to guys, and when they would switch a guard onto him, like Dame was just getting cooked out of there. And we haven't seen Millsap able to do that as much as he used to in his prime because why do you really want a Paul Millsap post-touch? It's not your best offense. But when you have a little guy on him, it's pretty damn good offense, and had 11 points in that first half, I thought was huge to keeping them afloat without Jokic. And just generally, I thought guys were being aggressive. They were getting downhill. Campazzo, Austin Rivers, all these guys, they didn't look completely lost without Jokic. And when they don't look completely lost without Jokic, that's an incredible sign to me because that means that you have enough to win this series. Yeah, I thought I thought Millsap 
did a little too much uh, at some points in the game. Uh, you know, a few head-scratching turnovers where I was like, you know, Paul, give up the rock or something. But, no, definitely, he kept the Nuggets in the game when Jokic was off the floor, and that's going to be the the biggest thing for the Nuggets is just frustrating, man. It's demoralizing watching the Nuggets' second unit blow a 12-point lead or whatever. I mean, at games where, I mean, I think towards the end of the first half in Game 2, when Jokic is off the floor and MPJ is the one who is assigned with uh, coming up to Dame, and he immediately closes a gap because he bangs three threes back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. Um, that's going to be the key to the rest of this series is what the Nuggets can do to stay afloat uh, with Jokic off the floor. And if they can get, you know, if Monte Morris can play like he does with, with Jokic on and off, if Millsap can replicate that, um, I think they've got a good chance of closing out the series. And I will say, I think you touched on a really big point. Um, with the Nuggets' defense, they did a tremendous job um, of, I won't say limiting Dame, limiting everybody else, though, uh, with switches. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously going to be a shootout. We know that coming in. That remains the case. But I think that the Nuggets just have a significant enough edge defensively, and I don't think that the first two games changed that, in my opinion. I mean, we saw what the Blazers can be with that third quarter in Game 1, but we also saw what they can let up with the entirety of Game 2. And the level they're shooting the ball at, even though they are phenomenal from beyond the arc, obviously, this is not sustainable. And the Nuggets had a bad shooting game in game one, and they shot the ball well in game two, and they won game two. And they won game two by a lot, and they still got outshot. So I just think that that's all telling. Let's move on to the last series out west here. Mavs Clips, one that we were very excited for, of course, a rematch, some phenomenal stars on both sides. You thought it was going to go seven. I thought it was going to go six. A good indication of this being a really tight series with the Mavs taking game one. What are your first impressions there? Um, you know, I, I won't overreact to this one too much either. The league's best shooting team didn't shoot well, and uh, Luka's still unstoppable. Also, uh, if you didn't see, yeah, Kawhi murdered Maxi Kleber. Uh, I don't think he can return for game two. That man's dead. Um, Luka, uh, 31-11-10, shot a 5 of 11 from behind the arc, and bruh. When they put, when they put Avita Zubac on him, just like he was just getting ready to eat. That was hilarious watching those switches, all the step backs. Zubac looked clueless on those switches. Um, so he bullied him. He literally bullied Pat Bev, um, and he ate on them. I think the biggest thing that I would do if I was the Clippers defensively on Luca, I am making these backdoor switches where. Anyway, Luca goes out of the pick and roll. I am putting Kawhi or PG on him. You cannot allow yourself. To have that big man switch, you're going to get eaten alive. Um, on top of that, the Clippers didn't shoot well. Kawhi goes 1-6 of six from deep. PG goes 2-8 of eight from deep. Marcus Morris, who I highlighted as a guy who can swing a series, shot 0-6 of six from deep. He's been third in field goal attempts all season long and points per game. He's going to have to pull his weight uh, alongside these three guys. And uh, Lucas' cohort shot well. Finney Smith, 4-5 of five from deep. Hardaway, 5-9 of nine from deep. Um... I think it's pretty simple. I mean, Luka is going to get his buckets. He is going to be a tremendous engine for this team. And I think it's really similar to the Nuggets Blazers series. And whatever uh, whatever supporting cast shoots better is who's going to win. And uh, so I think that's the biggest thing. Can, uh, can Kawhi and PG's teammates, can them two and their teammates knock down shots? But also, can you please make the defensive adjustment to stop letting yourself just get obliterated by the Luka pick and roll? I would... I don't want Pat Bev on him. I don't want Zubac on him. I want Kawhi and PG every single possession on Luka. You know, I don't care about anything else. That should be the most important focus for the Clippers. 
Yeah, so I agree with a ton of what you said. And I think obviously Luka was the standout of game one, but the biggest difference was the shooting. The Mavs were 47% from deep. The Clips were 27. We knew that this was a series that was going to come down to shooting. You have one team in Dallas where basically all their role guys are just shooters who have stuff created by Luka Doncic. And then for the Clippers, obviously everybody on their team is about how they shoot from beyond the arc for the most part. But I will say, I don't think you can just distill it down to that because Luka was phenomenal. And you mentioned him torching Zubats. The stepbacks were raining, the mid-range was on, the playmaking was exceptional, and you talk about those backdoor switches out of the pick and roll. Honestly, I might start trapping Luka at half court. I just think you do whatever it takes to take him away because even if it's four on three, nobody around him is creating except for Brunson, who's not getting starting minutes and maybe they make the adjustment, but I just think... Guys are going to knock down shots in Dallas. They're not going to create shots, though. And I don't think you can trust those guys to make good decisions, even if you have an extra defender committed to Luka for that second who has to recover. And you obviously can't do that for a full game. I mean, you're not going to trap a guy at half court for 48 minutes for six or seven games in a series. But I think whenever it gets to meaningful basketball, if you go down 15 and it's, oh, man, we need to do something to get out of this slump, or when you get to the fourth quarter, just get the ball out of his hands. And don't just get it out of his hands. Put him in a position where he can't make a play because you can blitz the pick and roll. That's probably a more practical coverage that's a good decision as well. But also, once he's within, you know, 20-something feet, wherever he's going to be running pick and roll from, he can dissect the defense. He can make those incredible passes. If you pick him up at 40 feet with two defenders, there is nothing he can do. And I don't know when he gets the ball back in that possession because you force the Mavs to act quickly because they think, okay, we have this four-on-three advantage. And Luka's not going to be cutting actively or whatever. And so I would just be a little bit scared if I'm the Clippers. And I would feel like I kind of have to do something like that because he looked like by far the best player on the court Monday. And of course, that's not always going to be the case, or Sunday it was. But he was outstanding. And I will say the other thing is that they should just put Kawhi on him more. He was guarded for most of the game, it feels like, by PG. But a lot of the times it was just whoever switched on to him. Put Kawhi on him, and you're probably going to have to switch the pick and roll but just start possessions with Kawhi Leonard on him, for God's sakes, because that's just your best option by so far as that perimeter shutdown guy. But my biggest takeaway was that outside of it just coming down to the shooting, the Clippers have to find a way to take him away because when you do, the Mavs are not that good. But he's also very, very, very difficult to take away, and that's why the Mavs are really good. No, and you make a good point about the... <laughs> maybe the 40 feet is what they have to explore, dude, because... There was this one play uh, I distinctly remember. Uh, he gets a screen at like the the right hash uh, towards the baseline, and the Clippers play damn near perfect defense. They slide to the roll man, they cut take that away, and the guy in the corner slides to just give a little extra help on Luca on the left side, and he just bullets one a rifle immediately the second that guy slides to Tim Hardaway Jr. in the corner, and it's just water, and it's not like. Marcus Morris closed out excellently on that play. It just doesn't matter because you gave Luka that little shed of light. You gave him that little opening, and he's going to exploit it every time. But you don't think you don't think the Clippers get eight up in a scenario like that? You think the Mavericks uh, just don't have enough creators to bully even a four-on-three advantage? I mean, it's obviously a risk, but I think it's a risk that makes sense to take. Luka is... I guess it's better than what's been happening. Yeah, and it's one game, so you don't want to overreact, obviously. And also, Luka's not going to hit the step-back threes like that every time, which is one thing. And he's still shot below 50%, but he was just commanding this game for 48 minutes. 
And I think you have to try to take that away more than anything else. But no, you can't trap him for a full game. But I do think, yes, put the pressure on other guys to make the decision, even if it seems like an irrationally large gamble. And maybe that's too risky, but I think it's a risk you have to take. Outside of that, I thought we kind of just saw what we already know, which is the Clips just don't have that third real difference maker. And that's why I was skeptical of them throughout the year as that true title threat. Nobody other than PG or Kawhi scored over 12. So when those guys aren't knocking down shots, as far as the role players, and PG and Kawhi don't go absolutely berserk, the Clippers will lose to playoff teams, but because they're maybe the best shooting team of all time, you don't expect them to shoot like they did in Game 1 very often. Can you answer a question for me? Do you, do you think that, like, does Rondo matter at all? Yeah, Rondo matters a little bit. I think that he can do what he did for the Lakers last year, as that creator when Kawhi and PG aren't out there and aren't dominating the ball, but I don't know that he'll be as important in some ways as he was last year, but I do think he matters. Would you rather give Pat Bev or Rondo minutes, like, to depend on? I mean, I think that as weird as it is because of what regular season Rondo is, I think that Rondo is better, but I also think that playing alongside PG and Kawhi, Pat Bev makes a little bit more sense sometimes just because the shooting is more reliable. But I think that Rondo is better, and I think that he's going to play himself into some big playoff minutes again because he always just steps up in these spots, and he deserves probably 25 minutes a game. Like, he should be a significant part of this team, and I was skeptical of that when he was brought over, but you know what? Skeptical no longer because he has been pretty consistently good for them. Okay, let's move out east now where we'll start with the 1-8 matchup again. We had a really interesting game, a weird game between the Sixers and the Wizards. What are your first impressions there? So I'll start uh, with this from the Sixers side because I think this is, I don't know, this is a really interesting game. First off, uh, Joel Embiid's unstoppable, man. Um, it was just so much fun watching those double teams even come in, and he's still knocking down those mid-range jumpers. He is just going to be unguardable. You know, it didn't matter what big man the Wizards put on him. He bullied Len. He actually, man, he was pushing Daniel Gafford around. You were right. At some points, and it's not like Gafford competes, but... Embiid would just throw him an elbow and put up a little easy layup. Um, it was weird that, you know, they didn't shoot lights out. I mean, you got a decent shooting performance from Danny Green, Seth Curry. Um, Tobias Harris really pulled his weight in this game, and I don't think this is a formula that they can really depend on um, in the future of this playoffs. I think Shake Milton is going to have to play better for this team to really perform well. Um I think that you're going to need Seth Curry to be a little more efficient with his touches from outside, but if Tobias Harris is is getting to his spots, knocking down these turnarounds uh, from the baseline, these little elbow post fades, uh, they're going to be a hard team to stop. And, you know, I guess I wasn't, you know, super impressed with them on the offensive end outside of Toby or Joel Embiid, but the one thing that you can really take away and what's been a positive for them all season long is that stifling defense. Tease was disruptive. Ben Simmons was on the top of his game. And, you know, I think Embiid lacked a little bit. He didn't look super aggressive on the inside, really going up to contest every shot, but he was good. Uh, but when you've got two defenders the caliber of Simmons and Thibault, they're going to make life hard for guys, and they certainly did on the Wizards' top two guys in Beal and Westbrook all game long. Um, I'm going to let you take over with the Sixers, but uh, I think this game was really interesting from both sides. Yeah, and I think that it was really impressive that the Sixers were able to weather the storm in that first half where Embiid was in foul trouble, but obviously, if Toby doesn't go for 30 points and a half, this game is different. And when he is on like he was in this one, I mean, he shows why he can be considered one of the best isolation scorers in basketball. He's phenomenal in that mid-range area and was exquisite 
for this game, really in that first half. That's obviously not going to happen very often, though. What I think stands out most from this game for Philly is that, first of all, they're a lot better than Washington because I think Washington played damn near their best game with the exception of Russ, and Philly still won this one. But more specifically, Simmons was really good in this one because of the playmaking and because of the defense, but he needs to attack as a scorer more. And I liked what he was doing playmaking out of the post when he had those guards on him in the first half, facing up back to the basket, dissecting the defense in a Jokic or Sabonis-esque way where he just has a mismatch and he can see everything because these guys certainly aren't affecting him. And I thought that he was really good at that, but for the most part, they're guarding you with Russ and Beal. Back those guys down. And there were two early possessions where he did it easily, and then he stopped looking to score in that same way, and by the second half, it felt like he really just stopped posting up generally. He wasn't even playmaking in that same way either. And obviously, Simmons is not going to be ever a crazy aggressive, super skilled post score, right? It's weird to watch. There was one time where he took just this hideous <laughs> sky hook. It reminded me actually of myself out there on the basketball court a little bit. I get a guard <laughs> on me and I'm still going to take a weird little hook from <laughs> 12 feet out. But this is the matchup to just go, Ben. And even if you're not shooting the ball every time, even if you're not putting those guys in the bucket every time, get those post touches get into the teeth of the defense and make decisions from there or force a double. And I think that he can, because of that, because of this mismatch and how they're guarding him, can be the most, the second most impactful offensive player for the rest of this series. But he has to, in my opinion, really just put his footprint on the game in that way because he was making great decisions in this one. He was passing with anticipation, played well in transition, not scoring, but playmaking, was defending his butt off, of course, but if he can really punish those guards, Philly's just going to be completely unguardable for the Wizards. And then on the other end, are going to play as good a defense as anybody else in the NBA. And then this series is just over. It's out of the question for Washington to really make it that competitive. I mean, you think Ben Simmons should still be hyper-aggressive even if he's not knocking down his attempts at the line? Yes. Fearlessness. Fearlessness is the key for Ben because when he drifts into being super passive— and when he gets in his own head a little bit, that's when he stops being really impactful offensively. Not always, because he can still be that impactful passer, but I'm saying he can be a more impactful passer if he asserts himself as a scorer in this one, too. And that's what I want to see. And sometimes, obviously, it's going to be clogged up. Sometimes is going to be down there. You don't have to force it. But if you see a clean paint and you have one of these guys on you, good God, man. Just attack, attack, attack. Let's talk about Washington here, because... They were obviously really competitive in this one, but as I said, I kind of felt like they played as well as they can. I thought that Beal was unreal, 33-10-6, but that third quarter, I think he scored like 20. I mean, it was just everything was falling. It was vintage Bradley Beal, but then outside of him, the Hotch was 5-8 of eight for 12. Alex Len was 4-6 of six for 12. Bertans was 4-8 of eight from 3. Gafford had 12 on 6-6. Six of six. The Rolo vintage hooks were falling for the most part. They shot 56% as a team. And they lost. Like, I just don't think they're going to play that well again unless, you know, obviously Russ had a great game along with all those kind of performances, and that's not going to happen. You're not going to have your role guys play like that offensively again in this series. And I really just think that what stands out is they don't have enough shooting to pull an upset. And if you're going to make upset noise, you probably have to go crazy from deep. And the Wizards are 28th and three-pointers made on the year. They made eight in game one, and there's just not enough explosiveness there from beyond the arc. This was a fun game. And, you know, again, they played really well. Like, I wouldn't have expected this game to necessarily be that competitive. 
but I also don't think that they're going to play much better than this. And the Sixers, I do think, can play this well again because although Toby won't be like this, Simmons can be better. They can shoot a little bit better from beyond the arc. And I don't see that same ceiling, obviously, for Washington. But they're the eighth seed. You can't expect them to pull off the upset. No, I think you hit on it. Um, this team is one 3 and D guy away from maybe being competitive in yeah. this series. Uh, when your offense is so reliant on Robin Lopez hitting a dude with his shoulder and then going up with a little post hook, uh, you're not going to win a series. And like you said, the role guys played perfect. Daniel Gafford was perfect on the offensive end of what they needed to do as a lob threat, as a role man. Um, Neto was actually making layups this game um, and being a competent offensive player. The biggest thing, though, uh, like you touched on, was Bertans. When he is hitting his shots, you have to win games. Four of eight, he kept them in this game, down the stretch, knocking down some uh, knocking down some threes. Uh, Hachimura hit a late three to keep this close and make this competitive, but you just need more of that early on, and... Yeah, Bertans is a guy we highlighted as a guy who can swing a series when he shoots four of eight from deep and you don't win. I don't know. It's not a good look, and uh, I don't know how much you can expect in this. For I don't know how much, like you said, I don't know how much better the Wizards can play and expect to win. Maybe you can cut down on the Westbrook and Beal turnovers, but uh, with two guys like Matisse and Ben Simmons, it's gonna be it's gonna be hard all series long. Yeah, I don't know how much better the Wizards can play and expect to win. Uh, I'm probably expecting a sweep the rest of this series just because they don't have another shooter and they don't have that big man depth that can actually impact or you know disrupt Joel Embiid. Yeah, I'm not going to change my prediction from what it was, which was Sixers and five, and it's going to be fun. This was a really fun game. I mean, obviously, it's up and down pace because you're watching the Wizards and you have those couple of explosive stars at the top, but there's just not enough night to night. The Sixers are so much better. I mean, as... I said in our playoff preview, they're now 36-7 and seven when Simmons and Embiid both play together. That's just ridiculous, and that's so much better than a team that was well below 500 for the vast majority of this year. Okay, let's move on to what, to me, is maybe the least interesting of these eight series at this point, or at least game one was. Net Celtics, what are your first impressions here? Yeah, uh, I don't really think we learned a whole lot of... Uh of new stuff in this game. And I think it just kind of accentuates how dominant the Nets are when you can shoot this poorly in the first half and still come away with a win. I mean, I think they shot one of 12 from deep in the first half and the Celtics were on fire. Um, you know, Marcus smart was knocking down threes. Uh, it's just, it's kind of demoralizing for other teams in the East when the Nets can shoot like complete ass from deep and it doesn't matter because Kevin Durant can get in that mid-range James Harden can get in that mid-range Kyrie can get in that mid-range and knock down all of these difficult shots even though they're not making up ground with threes they are keeping themselves in the game because they've got difficult shot makers um yeah I mean I think uh, on the Celtics end Tatum has to be superhuman in this series he's got to go for 30 or 40 every night Kemba yeah. has to show up Fournier's got to pull his weight um the one redeeming quality is you know I was completely wrong about Robert Williams, and I'm so happy. That dude is so much fun to watch out on the floor. Um, Ding up James Harden, uh, being an imposing lob threat. He's a beast. Uh, but, yeah, it's – I'm sorry, Boston. <laughs> You're going up against the most dominant offense of all time. Yeah, I don't really think we learned a whole lot more, but uh, the Nets are scary. That's my takeaway. Yeah, the Celtics are just shockingly outmatched. It, it's so dramatic, the difference in talent. And you mentioned it. Nets were 8 of 34 from 3. Their non-Big 3 members put up 22 combined points. And Brooklyn still wins that game. 
I mean, obviously the Nets are great. This to me said more, though, just about the shortcomings of the Celtics. I can already tell that it's going to be too much Marcus Smart in this series, and he was good in this game. I'm not going to criticize <laughs> him. He played well, but he took 13 shots, and that's not a crazy number, but it just felt like he had the ball in his hands a bunch and was trying to make those decisions and get those buckets. And that's what you expect. Nobody else is going to assert himself like that. I mean, even Fournier, I don't know if he is going to try to put his imprint on the game as much as a guy with the confidence of Marcus Smart will. So I'm a little concerned about that just because sometimes it's going to be ugly. But Kemba, 5 of 16, we knew it. He's not going to be a reliable second factor game after game after game. He's not the second star that he once was. And you played Tristan Thompson, Jabari Parker, and Aaron Neesmith a combined 64 minutes in a competitive game against the Brooklyn Nets. You're done. You're just outclassed. And this series is over. Yeah, exactly. Why the hell am I getting so much Tristan Thompson and Jabari Parker? Yeah. Because they don't have anybody else, Logan. Because at least those guys are vets who have played meaningful minutes. I guess not as much for Jabari. But they just don't have the depth. And we've known this all year. And it's being put on display for everybody to see right now. And you're right. Unless Tatum has an explosive game, he's going to have to score 40 for them to win. I mean... Also, you know, it could be Fournier and Kemba really knocking down their shots, but Tatum has to go berserk, and he didn't go berserk in this one. And I'm not saying that the Celtics can't win a game because they have Jason Tatum, who is special, otherworldly, offensively, but they're not going to win more than one game, I don't think. There's just such a dramatic gap here, and this just kind of confirmed everything that we expected. So let's move on to what I think was a series we were all very excited for. Game one delivered was riveting, in my opinion. Not necessarily the cleanest basketball, but highly competitive, really interesting. And then game two was a blowout. Bucks Heat, what are your first impressions from this one with the Bucks now up 2 nothing? Yeah, uh, I think that this series has reinforced a lot of things that we've already known about the Miami Heat. Uh, the biggest one is... If they're not shooting from behind the arc, they're not going to be competitive. Uh, I think the second biggest thing that we can take away from this on the Miami side is Goran Dragic has to be a second superstar for this team to win games. And in that first quarter, he's not hitting his threes. He's not getting to the mid-range and knocking down attempts. They got outclassed in that first quarter and got ran off the floor. Um, another thing that we can take away from this on the Miami Heat that little BS wall that they've built for Giannis, that isn't going to work when guys are balling like this uh, for Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Middleton's hitting his shots. Bryn Forbes is on fire. Um, and honestly, uh, the saddest thing for me, Carson, was after that first quarter uh, for Miami uh, in Game 2, I took away, if the Heat had Dwayne Dedman last year in the NBA Finals, damn, man, maybe they could have won it. Um, because he seems like the exact missing piece that they needed. Whoa. Um, Interesting. I don't know, bro. I think it makes it. I think he makes it maybe a seven-game series instead of six. I think he makes them a little more competitive. He's a good shot blocker. He's a really good shooter. Not a really good shooter. He's a competent shooter when he can get it going. He's a good rebounder. I don't know. I'm a big Dwayne Dedman guy here on Nerds. Um, <laughs> the Heat just don't have enough playmaking around Jimmy to make this competitive at all. And when Giannis's teammates are knocking down shots like this, they're unbeatable. I disagree that the Heat don't have enough to make it competitive at all. I do think that they're not going to pull it off. I thought that the Bucs were going to win this in seven, and I was optimistic that we were going to see a version of the Heat that we haven't seen consistently this year, but we did kind of see in the home stretch as they were clicking offensively, but I, I, they're not going to pull off the upset as a lot of people were hoping that they maybe would. Okay, I want to add to that. If Tyler Hero is... If Tyler Hero is at his best, maybe they can make this competitive, but we haven't seen that. 
Yeah. Well, I think that there's a pretty telling number about just how much the Bucks really are better in this series. Game one, the Heat outscored the Bucks by 45 points from three and lost. It was one of the worst Milwaukee shooting games you will ever see. It was a really good shooting game for the Heat, and the Bucks still found a way to win. And game two, obviously things are going to even out here. The Bucks are the better shooting team. You expect them to shoot better for the most part, and they did. They outscored the Heat by 42 points from behind the arc, and they won that game by 34. When you can't catch the Bucks, when you are knocking down shots like that, and they are missing shots like that, you're not going to be able to beat them in a best-of-seven series. But I also do think there's been some ridiculous overreactions, and it's kind of just annoying me. I mean, obviously, I maybe I shouldn't put so much stock in what people are just saying, you know, in the Twitter sphere or whatever, but the disrespect towards Miami is upsetting to me. And I think that there are a lot of overreactions. I mean, Jimmy's not going to go 4 of 22 again like he did in game one. Like, obviously, the Bucks shooting is really abnormal, but Jimmy going 4 of 22 is really abnormal. Tyler Hero does not suck. Like, obviously, he has had a couple of off games, particularly game two, but that game was just over. I mean, everything went wrong for the Heat in that one. I think Drogic as we saw kind of down the home stretch of the regular season, has rounded into form and has looked great. I mean, game one, he was phenomenal. And I also think that they made Giannis work in game one. He was 10 of 27 with five turnovers. They still have four guys who they can throw at him. And yeah, maybe Ariza isn't a Giannis stopper, but he's a body you can put on him and a generally plus defender. And this is a really good team defense. I don't think it's enough. I think that they need too much out of Hero at this point that he's probably not going to be able to replicate last year. He's probably not going to be able to put up 20 a game or whatever they might need. I think that they need too much out of Bam just because they don't have that second star offensively at times as far as scoring goes. And I think Milwaukee is just too good. And so I think that Milwaukee probably wins this in six. Like, I don't think that this is over. And I think that people who are acting like game two is the end-all be-all of this series, the Bucks what were they, 22 of 40-something from three? I mean, it was an all-time shooting game. That doesn't happen every time out. They're better, but they're not that much better. They were, uh, yeah, they were 22 of 53. Yeah, wow, that's just so many threes shot to begin with. But 22 made threes is absurd, man. So, yeah, I think that upset hopes maybe aren't too realistic, but I also think if you're going to count out Jimmy Butler and say, He's not going to ball out, and if you're going to discredit this this Miami defense, I think that that is ill-advised. I think that this is still going to be a competitive series, and game one was highly competitive, and yeah, the Bucs didn't play nearly their best basketball, but neither did the Heat, man. Jimmy was 4 of 22, for God's sakes. So I think he's going to put his imprint more on this series, and I do trust guys like Hero to be better, and I do think Drogic is really shown that he can still be a really impactful player offensively, and... I just feel like game two was such an outlier that really putting too much stock in that is unreasonable, but it was telling, and it showed us what the Bucks are when they're knocking down those shots, and it's just a team that's much better than the Heat. Fine. I'll take the bait. Bucks in five. I don't think this is competitive. I don't think they have enough creation around Jimmy. I think if Victor Oladipo was healthy here, um, maybe this is a little better just because they have another competent player in this rotation. I think the Heat are done. Yeah, no, I, they're not going to win this series, but I don't think it's going to be a sweep. I don't think it's going to be in five. I think it's going to be in six. And uh, I think that Miami is going to show us why when they're playing their best, they're still a really good team. Even though this has been a topsy-turvy, somewhat disappointing season, at their best, they're still really good. All right, last series here. Boy, what a fun game one this was. Knicks-Hawks, 
maybe my favorite game one, honestly. It's just so much fun to obviously have it end on a game winner from Trey Young, to have the garden bumping as it was, man. That was an insane environment. That was just so much fun to see. But what are your first impressions from this one with the Hawks now up one nothing? Somebody was right about Alec Burks all season long. <laughs> um. Yes. My brother, Ben Breber. No, just kidding, Logan. Yes, you are absolutely correct. Alec Burks is a bucket, but he's also my brother's, one of his favorite players. So, shout out, Ben. <laughs> of course Ben likes Alec Burks. That's just... <laughs> Good. Um, I'm glad he grew attached to him in his brief moments uh, with Golden State. Um, on the Knicks side of this, uh, I think we... I'm not going to say that they were, like, completely outmatched or anything, but I think offensively, uh, you saw a lot of the red flags that we highlighted before this started. Julius Randle is going to have to be, um, I don't know, better uh, consistently. He's going to have to be a late-game closer. But I think there's a lot more, there's a few more bright spots down in this rotation than we initially thought. Uh, Derrick Rose can be a huge impact player for the Knicks uh, late, in, late in games or just consistently, as he has been all season long. Um, if Alec Burks is shooting like this, he can be a really reliable weapon for this offense. Emmanuel quickly, uh, when he was getting his touches, was a reliable piece for this offense. So I don't think the Knicks are going to get completely outclassed on the offensive end. I still like the Hawks better. Um, I think what we saw out of Lou Williams was really, uh, was really exciting. I mean, he only got like 13 minutes out there, but he had 13 points and was... Mm-hmm. was a weapon uh, without Trey Young out there on the floor, and he's going to be someone they need to rely on. Um, so I guess from the Knicks side, there's a few more reliable pieces on offense than I initially thought. They're going to make life hard for the Hawks. But on the other end, the Hawks have the best player in this series, probably the two best players in this series in, offensively in Bogey and in Trey Young. And I think Trey reinforced why... Oh, look, okay, okay, we got a Julius Randle supporter right here. Yeah, I'm going to continue disrespecting oh him. No, you can't disrespect him to that level. By the way, I might be the world's biggest Bogey fan. You think Bogey is a better offensive player than Julius Randle? I'd like to have what you're having, all right? I'll have what he's having, this guy over here. Freaking nut job, Nuggets to the finals, Nuggets to win it all. No, I love Bogey. He's a second star. He's not better than Julius Randle offensively. The roles are not comparable. I like Bogey. Um, anyway, uh, Trey Young is... <laughs> <laughs> Trey Young is furtherly... Uh, <laughs> Trey is reinforcing uh, why I picked him as an all-star, as an all-NBA caliber player. Um, he was amazing out of the pick-and-roll playmaking for his teammates. Um, and, you know, just getting to his spots in the mid-range. And no matter how much I don't like it, uh, getting to the line here in these late-game moments and closing games out, um, it's going to be a really highly contested competitive series. I expect it to go seven or six, but... Because the Hawks have the best offensive player in this series and a more reliable weapon from deep in the mid-range all around, you see it play out in the final possession of this game. Um, Trey Young is a transcendent player and someone that people need to stop sleeping on. Dude, the fact that he wasn't an all-star this year is just so upsetting to me. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, in that moment, I was unhappy that Randall was an all-star. I was more unhappy that Vooch and Sabonis were all-stars because that was ridiculous. And I was unhappy that Levine was an all-star as well. First of all, Vooch and Sabonis were the obvious two cuts. I mean, that should have been Trey and either Bam or Middleton. I'm still upset about it now that I'm thinking about it. So angry about it. But yes, Trey Young is otherworldly, Logan. In the last seven minutes of this game, every Hawks score but one was created by Trey. He was responsible either scoring or assisting 
for 20 of their last 23 points. And the Knicks, as good of a team defense as they may be, have no answer. There is no answer for what Trey Young is doing out of the pick and roll at this point. He just dissects defenses. He collapses defenses. And we saw him do it, obviously, without really knocking him down from beyond the arc. He made one three. And this entire year, he has trended more and more towards scoring inside that arc. And he's obviously more dependent on the floater than probably any other player in basketball and gets to the line as much as basically any other player in basketball. But when he can have a dynamic, show-stopping performance like this with one made three, I think it highlights the uniqueness of him as a player. Like, Steph doesn't really do that. Dame rarely does that. Trey is different than those guys, and he's special in his own way. And yeah, sometimes he holds onto the ball too much. And he also had the ball in his hands for basically every second of the last seven minutes, you know? And sometimes that can be a problem, but it works so well for this team, and he amplifies the guys around him, and he was just phenomenal. I will talk about the guy who is the second-best offensive player in the series, and that is Julius Randle. Some people might even think that's disrespectful, Logan. I'm sure there's a huge portion of people who think he's the best offensive player in the series, I can't quite get there, but I think he's in for a tough series here. And if he's in for a tough series, uh, the Knicks are in for a tough series. He was 6 of 23 on the day in Game 1. Obviously, part of that is just his jumper was off. He was 1 of 10 for mid-range. He's a guy who is so dependent on making those tough mid-range buckets. When they're not falling, obviously, he's not going to play his best basketball. But I also just think he could barely get to the bucket with Capella in the paint. And... Again, his game is not predicated on getting to the line. Well, actually, he gets the line a decent amount, but it's not necessarily predicated on getting to the bucket every single time out. But he took two free throws. Seven of his 23 shots came in the paint. And I also think that because of that, because he wasn't really getting downhill, his playmaking impact was somewhat limited because he wasn't collapsing the defense. He wasn't drawing a ton of help. It was just him one-on-one against a couple of good perimeter defenders taking those tough off-balance jumpers that sometimes are going to fall but aren't always the best offense. And I do want to see more DeAndre Hunter even in this matchup, which I think just makes things harder and harder on Randall because Hunter only played 22 minutes, but Randall was one of five when Hunter was the primary defender, and every shot that he took on him was a tough jumper. And I also want to give props to John Collins, who spent a majority of the game on Julius Randall, and I don't think I could even say he's a good defender, but it's kind of a tricky option in this matchup because Randall doesn't blow by guys for the most part. You know he's going to maybe bully guys, or he's going to knock down those jumpers, but he's not that kind of explosive guy, and so Collins doesn't really get burnt there, and then you have a guy who's pretty long, who's going to give effort there, and who can affect those jump shots, and then when you combine that with the fact that Capella is going to take away that painted area, and just the fact that he is expected to be everything for this Knicks offense, I think it's going to be hard for him. I mean, you touched on it. I think that obviously Rose can have those big nights. Burks was fantastic in game one. I don't think he's going to play like that again, but he was fantastic and he could very easily be good offensively for the rest of this series. But I think it's going to be tough for Randall, especially as they put Hunter on him more and more, as I expect. And I just think the Hawks have too many guys offensively, as I expected before this series. I mean, do you think this is a... Can the Knicks look at this as a positive at all um, that this game was so close, even though Randall didn't play well offensively? Or, or R.J. Barrett? I think that you're kind of trading a fluke for a fluke there to a certain extent because it's like, yes, Randall did not play well, but also Alec Burks had one of the best games he could conceivably have, and D. Rose was still really good. It's not like RJ was bad. I mean, RJ wasn't as good as he has been for the most part, but he was okay. I see what you're saying, but to me it's kind of like the Hawks still have another level they can get to offensively as well. 
And I don't know that the Knicks really do. They might just be trading one guy playing better for another guy playing worse. Let me rephrase this then. Can we expect consistent production the rest of the series from the top three bench guys and quickly Burks and Rose? Yeah, I, it's somewhat consistent. I mean, D. Rose to me, yes. Quickly has been hot and cold throughout this year. And Burks, I also think, is going to be somewhat hot and cold. I mean, it's so much about the jump shooting with him that some days the jump shot is just going to be off. I think D. Rose, no question, but I just don't think D. Rose is a good enough second or third option offensively. And I know that some people will think that's sacrilege because he's really good. And it's been so fun to see him reshape his game. And the floater is just so astounding. And he hit a massive one in this game. And I was so positive that it was going to go. But even then, you know, you just have like three guys who you trust offensively in this series for the Knicks. It's just not enough, and it's not enough, you know, as was expected. All right, I'm going to ask a, a final Knicks question here. Why is Alfred Payton playing, period? You know, he played eight minutes, so I'm not going to complain about it. It's hilarious that he started, and this has been a question I think every Knicks fan has been asking himself all year because he sucks. He's terrible. But you know what? You play him eight minutes. That's all right with me. It's better than him playing 20 or whatever you would expect him to play sitting in that starting five. So this is going to be a fun series. Again, just awesome to have basketball back in the garden. Man, is it awesome. But yeah, I think as Hunter continues to get more minutes and puts his imprint on the game more offensively, the Hawks become scarier. I think Collins can have more of an offensive impact than he did in this one, but the defense was encouraging. Gallo had a weird game, but he could be better. Herder could have a bigger game. Like, I just think the Hawks have more room for growth than the Knicks do. And I think that, again, the, the struggles we saw from Randall, he will never play a game this bad again for the rest of the series. But I think he's going to be laboring for his buckets every time out. And I think that when that's the case, it's just not going to be enough. And it's such a contrast to what he did to the Hawks in the regular season where he tore them up. But I do think having Hunter back out there now changes a lot and he was getting to the line like crazy in those three games and again he got to the line once he shot two free throws this entire game and it was pretty late pretty deep into it so any final thoughts on any of these series as we wrap things up yeah I'm gonna pick the Hawks of the finals all right Logan Camden ladies and gentlemen well this has been a fun one obviously we don't want to overreact to anything like I wasn't switching any of my predictions here I didn't change my winner in any of these series I don't know if I would even change how many games really I think uh, most of these series are going to go, with the exceptions of maybe Bucks Heat dropping a game there. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, we saw a bunch of highly competitive games. We saw some of the adjustments that happen when it comes time for playoff basketball. And uh, this was a lot of good stuff. And uh, I feel very privileged to have watched it thus far. All right, so I, will, I do want to ask one final one then. Carson, what do you think is the most likely uh, upset that you didn't pick uh, in our initial preview after watching these first few games? Does it have to be an upset, or can it be a flip in a series? Yeah, just a flip. I think that it's probably the Suns beating the Lakers. I don't think that's going to happen. I guess the cooler pick would be Mavs beating the Clippers, but I also don't think that's going to happen. I'm sticking with my guns across the board, but those couple series I think are going to be really interesting, and I think that the Suns are obviously good enough to make this an absolute grind of a seven-game series. As I expected, I just thought it would go the Lakers' way, and I still think it'll go the Lakers' way, but it's going to be tough, it's going to be ugly, and uh, it's going to be intense basketball that's going to put a lot of pressure on the defending champs throughout. So, lots of good basketball ahead. 
And don't worry, we're not going to stop talking about it because obviously there's nothing we would rather do here on Nerd Sesh. And if you enjoyed this, uh, you can keep enjoying our content. We've got plenty more like it on our YouTube channel. We do a bunch of video content there, been posting some of our full podcasts there, most of them really. But Logan just did a video on the 2020 NFL MVP race. I did a video last week on why the Hawks are terrifying, which uh, remains relevant because of obviously their game one win on the road. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your audio content. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh and on Instagram at nerd sesh to keep plugged in with what we are doing on the pod. But with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.